that moment, I said, I will do anything I can do to turn my life around. I will do anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Tales from the Journey podcast. I'm Stephanie Zamora, and today I'm here with my dear friend, one of my favorite humans in the world, Seth Perler. Seth, thank you for being here. Hello, everybody. It's good to have you. Are we on um, speaker view, by the way? Um, We're on gallery. Cool. Totally messing up her podcast, everybody. (laughs) But hi, everybody. I'm really glad to be here. does. But in all seriousness, tell people about your brilliant work and who you are and what it is you do. My brilliant work. Well, first of all, Stephanie Zamora does some brilliant work. We've known each other for a long time, and I cannot start talking about myself without talking about her first. Because she has been someone who has had a big, big influence on me and um, and my work and my growth and my business. And she's just really got a brilliant mind, um, deceptively brilliant, because she's an <laughs> introvert and kind of quiet. Um, but don't let that fool you because she's brilliant. And so anyhow, I just want to thank you, Stephanie, for putting out into the world something that serves human beings in this particular format on your podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Now tell people about your brilliant self, please. Okay. About my, which, which aspect am I talking about? Just like a brief introduction of who you are and what you do. Who I am. Okay. So uh, my name is Seth Perler. I am what's called an executive function coach and I'm an ADHD coach and a two-week coach. But what that really means is that I um, am passionate about education and I am angry and frustrated that students who don't fit in the box, um, these outside the box thinkers and feelers and doers and talkers, these kids that do not fit in boxes well, they cannot fit in the school box well, and they end up, quote, failing. So that pisses me off. We have a, um, you know, a system that has, as one of its metrics, you have ABCDF, is called F and fail. And that drives me nuts. And I was a teacher for 12 years. I have a master's in gift and talented education. Um, I struggled mightily as a kid and a teenager, um, like you wouldn't believe. And, uh, and so I am really, I cannot stand watching people. I, I can't stand watching animals or insects or plants suffer, but I can't stand watching young people suffer and, and not be understood. So my life's work is dedicated to, as an, as an executive function coach, a vlogger, a blogger, a speaker, blah, blah, is how do we communicate to the adults who have an impact on these kids' lives, parents and teachers and others, how do we help them to understand this thing called executive function, um, which seems to my brain to be at the root of most of, of the problems for these kids that I work with, how, how do we help help them um, empower, how do we help the adults empower the kids? And I work with kids directly as well, but how do we help them? How do we change the story and the narrative and stuff like that? So those are some things about me. Um, I am an ADD personality. I do not fit in the box myself as an adult. I didn't as a teacher. I didn't as a kid. Um, but I am not in the hopeless place that I was when I was a young person. Um, I have a fantastic life today that I do love. Um, and I hope I live a very long life. And uh, I've gotten to do really neat, interesting things and live the way that I want to live. I, I, and it's not perfect, but I have made choices that have enabled me to choose my lifestyle and um, be able to 
feel like I have a fulfilling purpose. I have fulfilling work. And all, all this to say that I, I was someone who was very hopeless and didn't think I could do anything like this. And I do have a fantastic life today. Um, so anyhow, my life is dedicated to that. I also, I don't know what else I should say, Steph, but I love nature and being outdoors and sunshine and mountains and oceans. And people, community. And, and humans. I can talk to anybody <laughs> anywhere in community. I am not an introvert. I'm pretty far extroverted and ENFP. <laughs> For those who care about ENFP type of things, um, I think I'm a seven, eight, eight, seven, whatever the heck that wing, whatever. <laughs> and Graham, I'm not super versed on that. And um, yeah, and I'm just somebody who I'm very creative. My creativity a lot is in my business nowadays, but I just always have new hobbies and new interests and want to learn new things. And yeah. that's who Seth is. Seth is awesome. It's so true that you're an extrovert. Hiking with Seth means meeting everyone on the trail, which is not what introverts do. That's a stretch <laughs> for Stephanie. <laughs> um, so yeah, we want to talk about your dark night of the soul and how that shaped you into the man that you are and the work that you do. But before we talk about that, paint us a picture of who you were before. Like what was life like? Who were you? What were you doing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So starting, so I was adopted as a baby. Um, I actually met my birth mother this year and my birth sister and just had a birthday and got cards from my sister, mother and birth brother, which was pretty, pretty cool. Um, but I was adopted and um, turns out that my mother was 100% uh, Irish Catholic. I was adopted into a Jewish family. She specifically wanted me to go to a Jewish family for some certain reasons, was adopted into a wonderful family and who I'm still very close to. But I was this little toehead platinum blonde boy <laughs> and I had this long, crazy hair as a little boy. And I was this free-spirited, very open-hearted, very open-minded, very curious um, little boy. And... Uh, obviously, as I didn't fit in the box of school, you know, those things got, you know, those flames of passion, of curiosity and stuff, um, you know, I, I those were definitely impacted by some of the messaging that I got from culture and society and education and stuff like that. But um, so I was this really free-spirited kid. And I had my little crew of friends, we would go out to the woods and the ponds and the forests and catch frogs and turtles and go uh, do all those types of things. And um, that was probably my favorite thing to do. I always had pets and everything. But once I became, I was always kind of intense internally and a deep feeler. Um, but once I became 11, 12, 13, and I really... I think it became more apparent that I wasn't conforming the way I was supposed to. Mm. Um, I really started to internalize messages. Now, my sort of external messages, meaning I could communicate them to you, is I'm lazy, I'm a failure, I can't do anything right, why try? Um, when am I ever going to use this? This is stupid. Um, I hate this. Um, and then as I got more into teenagehood, you know, the world sucks. People suck. The older I get, the more yeah. people suck. You know, this is 
there are no whatever, this is just hopeless. But what I internalized, meaning I couldn't articulate this, was I'm a piece of shit. Mm. I have no value. I'm not enough. I'm not okay. I'm broken. I'm, you know, the, the, those sorts of messages were what I internalized. Again, I didn't have a consciousness around that. I just could not stand to be in my own skin. I didn't like what it was like. And I'm an extrovert. So when I'm in my extroversion, I'm not, I'm not really thinking about that. But when I'm alone by myself, trying to sleep at night or in my own thoughts, and I'm not daydreaming or meanwhile, that was another label that I had on my report cards, daydreamer, (laughs) which is one of my best qualities. Yeah. I, I think. Um, it, it, my daydreaming empowers me to come up with amazing ideas that help humans. But anyhow, um, I started to internalize that I'm not okay. And I, I was uncomfortable with my own skin. Um, I was depressed, anxious, um, all, all those things. Diagnosed with bipolar at 13, you know, they got me tested for learning disabilities at 12 or 13. And they said, well, he doesn't have any learning disabilities. In fact, he's gifted. And so then that made it because we have such a poor understanding of the system sometimes that made it just more baffling for my parents because they were like, well, we know he can do it. Why isn't he doing it? And that sort of a story was coming in because they, because what happened is that, and this happens to the students that I work with is that the story that society is telling is that it's not that Seth, um, it's not that he can't, it's that he won't. He won't apply himself. He won't be disciplined. He won't motivate himself. He won't focus. He won't whatever. He won't try hard enough. He won't um, put forth more effort. He won't meet his potential, all these things. And so I I didn't know, you know, I just listened to the, those messages or tuned out those messages. You know, they're, they're not, they're hurtful. Um, but you know, it was baffling, I think to my parents to be like, what's going on? He's, he's gifted and he's, and he's failing. Why? Um, he needs to try harder and all these things. So, you know, as I became a teenager, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16, you know, I, um, when I, when I was about 13 is when I first started having, you know, suicidal thoughts, which carried, uh, I, I carried on for seven or eight years, um, daily. And I was very serious about that. And I had my, you know, and I didn't think anything mattered. I didn't just thought nothing matters in this world. You can't do it anyway. You can't do well enough anyway. Then I had, on the other hand, these grandiose thoughts that someday I'm going to own an island and um, grow a bunch of drugs and make a bunch of money and be rich (laughs) and drink Coronas on a beach. and And I thought that somehow I could accomplish that when I couldn't even keep a job at Subway or Walgreens or the grocery store. Um, So I was getting fired from jobs that are very hard to get fired from. Um, But my message was, I just mess everything up, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, so it was dark and I wanted to check out. I didn't want to feel those things. So in my extroversion, I could avoid it, maybe in TV or video games or um, drinking or drugs or, whatever, whatever I could find to sort of get some relief from how awful it felt to be me is, is what I did. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and I know your story, obviously, because we're good friends, but there were 
several factors for your like dark, dark night of the soul and kind of rock bottom. Can you kind of walk us through what that looked like and what it felt like? Yeah, well, I've had a, I've had some different rock bottoms, but really where it started was um, with just, so one of the thoughts that I had uh, a long time ago was that what it meant to be suicidal was that I hate myself so much, so much that I want to murder myself, you know, to murder. And I know these are dark thoughts, but you want me to share my story. Yeah. So I, I just hated who I was. I did not believe in myself. I did not believe I could change. I did, had no context for it. I just knew it felt so, so constricting and awful and itchy. It's like an itch you can't scratch. I just couldn't turn off. I'm a thinker, my brain would always go and I just couldn't, didn't know how to tame it, didn't know how to turn it off. So anyhow, I, I start getting in trouble and um, a lot <laughs> or not getting in trouble and doing things I should have gotten in trouble for, but I was good at not getting caught or blah, blah, blah. So I started doing a lot of bad things and um, just hating on me. And um, I would never let you know it. I would act like I had my shit together and like I knew what was going on, like I was in control. And, you know, if I was talking to my friends, I'd act like I'm so confident, but I'm a victim. The world sucks and people suck. And my parents did this and the school did this and they, they fired me. Those stupid people fired me because, you know, and I was just a victim. Nothing was yeah. my fault. And now I try to live by the 100% responsibility principle. If there be fault, let it be mine and doing my part. But at the time, total victim mentality. So um, I just, life felt hopeless and awful. And I just wanted a pause button. I wanted to take this spinning earth and click pause and just stop for a minute and just step back and take a break, but I couldn't do it. So I felt like I was like, on, there's a term, a loose cannon on a rolling deck. Like I was just yeah. like, I didn't know where it was that I was going to go crazy. Um, one flew over the cuckoo's nest which had a huge impact on me when I was 13. But I mean, that imagery, I was like, I'm, I'm going crazy. I don't know what, what the line is that's going to push me over the edge. I don't know what the edge is. I don't know what's going to happen. And that's how life felt for me. Yeah. Not all the time. Not all the time. When, like I said, when I was with people and stuff, I'm, I'm acting you know, I'm not stuck in my monkey mind of inner critic and negativity and all of those things. So, um, so at some point when I was in my early twenties, I hit rock bottom and what rock bottom was for me was that I knew that my choices and my behaviors and my actions, um, could get me killed, could get me hurt could lose my family. Um, they were done with me by this point. That was actually my bottom, bottom. Could put me in, a, in an insane asylum or institution or whatever I, my mind thought of uh, it was at that time. Like, um, could put me in jail. So I knew that I had very, very serious negative consequences right around the corner. But it was really when my family, my brother, my parents, I'm close with my brother, when they were like, we're done with you. And I already felt like I couldn't do anything, but like I knew as something new at that point that on my own, I, I am, there's a term called learned helplessness. Like 
I, I don't know how to do, I don't know how to keep a job at, at Subway, you know? Yeah. Um, so I was very hopeless. And when I hit that, that bottom, um, I made a decision and it was a Sunday. And that day I did some reflection and I need to tell you that I was drunk and high a lot. I was checked out. Uh, by that time, when I was in my early 20s, I was checked out as many hours of the day as I could be. Yeah. And that moment, I said, I will do anything I can do to turn my life around. I will do anything. And in my mind, I said, I'm going to do anything anybody tells me to do that's positive for three months. I'm just going to do everything somebody tells me to do. And I'm going to stop listening to my own mind because I cannot trust myself. I cannot rely on my own brain. I cannot rely on my thinking. It lies to me. And, and I even at that time, there was a part of me that said, my brain lies to me so much. How do I even know that now it's not lying to me? Right. And I didn't, I didn't even know, you know. What, but, made, what prompted you to even have that thought in the first place? My brain lies to me. Well, I was always a pretty deep kid. I read the book, Your Erroneous Zones, when I was 13 or so. I read Elizabeth Kubler-Ross on, deaths and, on death and dying when I was 13 or 14. <laughs> I read a book, an old self-helpy book that um, is not, I don't think it's a classic, but it was in those days, it was, it was called I'm Okay, You're Okay. Um, like I'm reading this stuff like gotcha. young. Yeah. And um, I got to meet Wayne Dyer, by the way, before he passed away, which was oh, cool because awesome. he had such a profound impact on me. That book, Your Erroneous Zones, even though today, by today's standards, might be a cheesier one, but oh my God, it rocked my world. Um, I read a book by Hugh Prather called Notes to Myself and then some other ones of his, um, Illusions, All I Ever Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten, like any of these books. Like when I started finding books that challenged my introspection and self-reflection and metacognition and, and self-awareness and stuff, I was just on, I loved it. So that was part of what helped. But the other thing that helped was that there were people that cared about me and that were trying to help me and that were mentors and that did take yeah. time for me and that did try to tell me the truth, um, regardless of my feelings about it. And that would pull me aside and, and really try to be kind and generous and helpful with, with their wisdom, which I was not ready to receive. So the, those, those two things, I think my interest in introspection, and I really did want to be honest with myself, even though I lied to myself so much, I did have this part of me that loved that personal growth stuff. Um, although I just wasn't acting on it, I just wanted it without having to work for it. And right. as you and I know, Stephanie, we got a lot of work. It takes to work. Do. Yeah. Real, real time and energy and slaying the dragons and the yeah. demons. And, but um, so I think those two things really helped me along the way. My family that did love me, even though I thought I, I hate them or they never let me do anything or they're, they're just not fair. They just don't get me. They just don't. No, that wasn't the truth. I mean, they're not perfect, but they, they, really did do the best that they could do with me. And um, I was completely unfair to them. And so anyhow, I had people that took time and I, I'm glad you asked that because 
I do believe that we all have people available available to us. And I know that there are people out there listening that says, not me, you don't understand my situation. Um, And I totally get that thinking because I I have used that thinking for many things. So, you know, at the time, I never would have told you I had people in my corner. I would have been focusing on all the people who, whatever, and all the things they do wrong. But anyhow, I'm glad you asked that because seek and you shall find. That is a truth that I believe. And if you don't want to find it and you seek, you won't. You know, if you think you're seeking, but you really, your heart's not in it, you're not going to find anything. Yeah. You, there's a thing called confirmation bias. You will find what you're looking for to confirm what you already believe. Yeah. So changing my beliefs was really, really hard. But I think it started with that day when I hit that bottom and I said, I will do anything people tell me right now and just try it and shut and not listen to my stupid head. Now, having said that, can I move on or did you have another yeah. follow-up? Having said that, so in sort of a metaphysical or spiritual way, when I surrendered and gave up and said, I'm ready for people to help me, what I want people to know is I was ready to do anything people told me, but my effort sucked. It was horrible, My, but it was my best. But my best to try to take people's advice was just, anybody looking from the outside would be like, nothing's happening, Seth. You're not doing anything. But for me, that was the very best I could do. And every day I just did the best I could do. And had I measured myself on what my intention was versus what my actions were, I would have failed. But what's cool to me about the universe and about spirituality, what I believe in, you can believe whatever you want. I'm not here to preach anything to anybody. But what's cool to me is that when we put our energy in a direction and we surrender and we let go and then we try the things, that's when the magic happens. That's when we really yeah. start to see things. And I started to see things where I started going, wow, that's a weird coincidence. And then I'd have another one. And then I had so many coincidences that for me, they became beyond coincidence. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of a big part of my awakening was that yeah. I was saying, wow, when I try, however awfully I do it, to align with some greater purpose or whatever you want to call it, when I try my best to align with this thing, I have no idea what it is, even to this day, something happens, something magical happens. Coincidences, transformations, growth. You know, it's just, I cannot explain it, but I cannot deny it. What was your relationship to that sense of whatever we want to call it, but that sense of like a higher power or a greater energy before all of this? Did you have a relationship to it? Probably up until the point I was four, I think I had these sort of bizarre spiritual indigo child experiences. And then I just, I I went to a a Jewish school from kindergarten to eighth grade, so nine years, and prayed every day, put on tefillin, like did all the things, studied the Torah. Not once, not once when I prayed, did I ever contemplate that there was actually something there. I don't know why, but I just never connected a dot. I was just like, oh, we have to say these things or learn these things. 
but I didn't have any sort of belief or relationship. Um, as I got into high school and I learned about the word agnostic, um, I was like, that's me. I can be an atheist one minute, an agnostic woman, a believer one minute, uh, who the hell cares in one minute. Um, like that was perfect for me. I'm like, I don't know, who am I to know what the hell is going on with this crazy universe? Yeah. So that was my relationship before then. And then the more I hated myself, the less I wanted there to be any sort of a power because I believed that if there was, then I'm going to hell. Mm. So uh, I just had that internal belief. So that, that was how it was before. And then after, when I started changing, a big part of the surrender was I started to pray. Now, I don't really care what any of you call praying. I'm going to tell you what I did. I, I um, had a ceiling in my bedroom with the popcorn texture. I would look at that ceiling every night and I would say, hey, God, what's up? This is Seth. You probably know that if you're God. Um, I don't really know if you're there, but I'm going to pretend you're there for a minute. Um, help me out tomorrow. And, you know, and then I'd wake up the next morning, look at that ceiling and be like, hey, God, what's up? This, you know, and I started like having this dialogue with whatever. Yeah. Um, so, and I, and I still to this day, I pray or manifest or um, meditate or I do, and I do legit meditation where I actually sit and meditate. Um, you talked about surrender a few times. How would you describe what surrender is to someone else? And also what did that like really look like for you? So I think what people misunderstand about surrender is they think that they have to do it perfectly. And I think what it is, is um, it is not an event. Even though I had a big event, that spurred surrender, it is not an event. And I think people who think that and who are waiting for it or looking for it are wasting their time. So I think that for me, what it, for me, and I, I, everybody has their own experience. So um, I hurt and I didn't wanna hurt anymore. And I also didn't wanna die because I could have ended the hurt by dying, yeah. but I didn't want to do that at this point on that day. So for me, it was asking for help, whether it was from a God or the universe or the great spirit or this popcorn ceiling, or whether it's from my parents or whether it's from mentors or whether it's from a person at the grocery store or on a park bench, asking for help is surrender saying, I don't have the answers. Will you please help me? Yeah. But the thing is, is it's, again, it's not an event. It's a practice. You ask again and again and again. And with your confirmation bias, I can say, oh, that didn't work. Oh, it doesn't work for me. Oh, that's stupid. Oh, I can't meditate. I have ADD. Oh, <laughs> blah, blah. Whatever. My brain just wants to find resistance to everything that is good for me. Yeah. So it's that sort of continuing to surrender over and over and over and reading books, people have studied these things. So why not yeah. learn from other people's wisdom? Asking grandparents, whatever, you know. Um, with, the wisdom is out there if we seek. So. Yeah, I love that. And you've mentioned mentors a couple of times, few times too. And that's something that we talk about in journey mapping because 
like the structure of the conversations of this podcast kind of follow that hero's journey and the journey mapping process. And so one thing that I talk a lot about is the role of mentors, both externally and internally. So what were some of your mentors and how did they really help you? Yeah, you know, uh, probably most of my mentors don't know I exist. Um, you know, I'm a fan of Seth Godin. I consider him a mentor. I met him once, gave him a handwritten letter. He looked at me like I was crazy. He probably didn't look at me like I was crazy, <laughs> but I'm so grateful to him. Um, but he, he's, I consider him a mentor. Um, I consider you a mentor. You have mentored me. Um, so people, I think, over overthink that too and think that it's like a marriage and they have to find the perfect whatever. That's not what it's about at all. Sometimes the most yeah. surprising person can be your mentor, meaning like somebody you completely underestimate. Um, but these are just people that they might be professors, teachers, parents, relatives. Um, so one of them was this guy that took an interest in me when I was in college. He just was spent time with me and would talk about life. His name was Andy. And he was, he was somebody who I just, you know, I thought he was kind of a weird nerdy guy and he owned a little record store um, when they used to have records and, um, and um, so, you know, I just, but, but there's something about him that I was like, I don't care what I think about the guy, the guy's happy. Yeah. And he was a mentor. And like one day I was complaining about my girlfriend and we're talking and I'm just like talking about all this stuff. And he goes, Seth, do you make your bed? I'm like, what does that have to do with anything? He's <laughs> like, why don't you start making your bed? And I'm like, you're not listening to me. Well, I started making my bed and Seth style. I did not do it every day. And I, when I did it, I barely did it, but I would like at least pull some, you know, and it had nothing to do with the issue, but it had everything to do with the issue. Yeah. So there's a, there's a surrender where I can start a discipline and I'm not disciplined. So, but for me, that was more discipline than I had. Um, yeah in that there are other lessons that are related to the girlfriend thing that come through that. And so, yeah, so I've, I've really had, I consider that I have a lot. I mean, yeah. you know, our whole mastermind group that we were doing, like I would say everybody in there is a mentor. We come yeah. with a common um, desire to grow our business and ourselves and magic happens. Um, I think when we find people who are aligned with us and who push us and tell us the truth and, even in, in that group, even the hard truth, you know, we might rip each other's stuff apart or really support each other, but, uh, or really I rip each other apart with love yeah. intention. I mean, we're, we're like your website, blah, blah, blah. You're missing the mark. When, you know, <laughs> people who are mentors, I think who are honest with us, yeah. even when it's uncomfortable and who yeah. have an interest in seeing us, um, be better at whatever it is. It can be sports. Yeah. It can be business. It can be romance it can be personal it can be fitness did I say that whatever whatever it is <laughs> totally and again those can be mentors books yeah you know your dog can be a mentor your yeah. cat <laughs> definitely to so go back to your story and your journey another thing we talk about in journey mapping is the idea that the fall is not the hard part so like rock bottom and those dark night of the soul moments are really really incredibly difficult, but the hard part 
comes after that. And it's making that choice to rise up and come back and create something different. So talk to us about what that looked like for you. Well, I'll tell you something. Now I've been on my path uh, for almost, for over 25 years on my spiritual journey and my growth. And I am just realizing in the last four or five years, uh, having sort of the very slow epiphany, epiphany is not the right word, this sort of awakening of understanding that. Yeah. Yeah. So I can get through the hardship. That's, that I can do. Learning to enjoy it and appreciate it when it's good. That's what my practice is now. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't say it's hard, but I would say it's harder than getting through the hardship is learning to enjoy and appreciate really what's good. Yeah. So with the confirmation bias, we, we see, or with, with the reticular activation system or what, whatever, whatever we focus on is what we see in order to focus on what's good. It takes practice. I mean, we have, I work so hard on shitty attitudes. I work so hard on depression. I work so hard on anxiety and fear thoughts and, and inner critic. And I mean, I didn't think of it as work, but I practiced every day throughout all, every day, those thoughts that kept me stuck. I worked very hard. It's a practice. So to change that takes a long time and it takes a lot of practice. Yeah. So now my practice is really, um, and I do find it harder than just getting through the hardship is to, to enjoy and be present for the good stuff. So I'll say that. And I will say that the two things that really helped me, so there was the hitting bottom, there was the deciding to surrender, continuing to surrender. But the two things about, I. so one of my mentors used to call me impatient. And you know me, I am not an impatient person. When it comes to weird things, like, you know, if I'm in a line and somebody has like 20 items in the 10 item line, I am very impatient. And in my mind, I'm like, that person is such a jerk. Oh, they're probably going to pay for <laughs> And, um, you know, I'm thinking thoughts like that. I'm going to go key their car. I'm not that bad. <laughs> but I don't say anything. I don't huff and puff. I'm not a jerk. You know, yeah. I'm not an impatient person that way. But I am impatient. I want my spiritual growth now. I want my career now. I want my relationship now. I want my house now. I want my goals now, blah, blah, blah. So two things. Patience is the key for me, meaning it is not on my timeline. And you cannot, I cannot be successful with patience without persistence. My patience wants, my lack of patience wants me to give up and say it doesn't work. And this is stupid. And this is a waste of time and blah, blah, blah. I want to be, if anybody's watching this on video, you can see I'm like Charles Atlas here. I want, just (laughs) kidding. I want to be like Arnold in like six weeks. You know, like tell me the workout. I clearly do not do that. Um, (laughs) But if I had patiently been doing that for 20 years, I, I would be, in the physical shape, but whatever, that's just an example, but patience and persistence with my spiritual path, with my life path, with my life's work, with living in integrity, with feeling better, with letting go of the inner critic, with depression, anxiety, patience and persistence. I have to keep going even when I think it doesn't work. There's a saying, don't leave before the miracle happens. So you, it's, 
they're, and I tell people this a lot when they're going through stuff, but when I'm going through stuff, what I know is that when I'm really in the darkness, there will come a day when I turn back and say, oh, I'm not there anymore. And it's when you're in it, it seems so far away. It's, I've seen you go through some serious darkness, you know, and I'm sure when you were in it, it felt like it was like years away and it probably actually was (laughs) years away, months away. But if we move in the direction, we will come to a day when we turn back and we're like, I'm not there anymore. And we have to be able to appreciate that when it's there. So there we go. Patience and persistence. And then the hard part is when you're on that wave, really being present and enjoying it when it's good. You know? Yeah. So true. Ugh, you're so right. I, I actually was talking about this the other day, something that gets me through hard moments, even if it's small things. Like I remember being at the dentist once and the numbing was wearing off and it hurt. And just thinking at some point, I'm going to be on the other side of this. Like I'm going to be walking out and my mouth will feel fine, but right now I have to live through it. And so it's kind of like this anchoring in that future moment while being in the moments. It's a, it's an odd balance for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And we have tools and have to use them. Talk to us about how that dark night of the soul really shaped you and how it's led you to create the life you have and the business you have now. I think that, I mean, it shaped everything. It was the seed. So everything I have today is based on the worst time in my life. What I would have told you was the worst time in my life was the most pivotal, most perfect time in my life. Yeah. So you asked me sort of how it got me here. Yeah, how it shaped you and led you to where you are. I think it taught me some key things. One thing that I learned at that time was doing things for others and not just for me. I had been obsessed with me. Mm -hmm. I was worried about me, fearful about me, thought about me all the time. Um, I I was a very selfish, self-absorbed person, and I didn't even know it. I had no awareness of how selfish I was. So journaling, counseling, real friendships, people calling me on my shit, that stuff helped me to see how obsessed I was with me. So on the one hand, I hated me, but on the other hand, all I do is think about me. It's like not working. So um, I learned to be helpful, to do things for other people without any expectation and to be kind and generous. And I will say mm-hmm. that that is one of the things I like most about who I am today is I see myself as a very kind, generous person. And that generosity comes back so much to you. Um, but I really try to give. So I learned service back then. And that has stuck. I learned the patience and persistence very slowly. I mean, I was skeptical. Um, now I understand it, but back then I just had to trust it and have faith. Um, I learned to ask for help. So that got me there. I learned to be honest and I was a liar to myself and others, literally and figuratively, but I learned to start. And this was not overnight because I would find that I just lied to someone. I'd get in my car and be like, why the hell did I do that? And I would be (laughs) sick of myself. Well, in the past, I wasn't sick of myself. 
Now I have a conscience and I can't live like that. And I learned that the road gets narrower, meaning that I can't tolerate my own bullshit as much. Yeah. I, I am very sensitive to it. When I do something that's not an in integrity for me, I, I am not okay with it. So those are some of the, some of the ways that it shaped me. I mean, I could go on forever. I know we're going to wrap up in a minute here, yeah. but. Um, How did it lead you into your purpose work? Oh, that's good. I mean, I'm so lucky because I will say this because of service. I do think I'm doing what I was born to do, but because of service and focusing on others and surrendering, I think serendipitously, I got this stupid job from a newspaper. We used to have these things called newspapers. You look for a job and I got a job working with kids and I fell in love with it. Six months into the job, I realized that every day, so I had, I'm, I'm like driving in Indianapolis home from work on this curvy road called Spring Mill Road. I'm smoking a cigarette, driving a stick shift, long hair flying with the window open, this little <laughs> old um, Mazda and um, I'm smiling. And I realized that I'm happy after work. And I realized that I'm always happy after work. That moment, literally, it's one of maybe 10 or 20 moments in my life that were an uh, instant moment. I decided to dedicate the rest of my life to working with kids. Started working with kids, becoming a teacher, yada, yada. And, um, and really frustrated as a teacher with the system, being an outside the box teacher in person and knowing how I was as a child and seeing what the kids are going through, starting to connect the dots. This is my story, what these kids are going through. Yeah. So then I left teaching and started my business in 2010 and just, I am on fire, like just serving and getting better and better and better and better and better. Sorry, my phone is ringing. Getting better and better and better and better at how I'm able to show up in the world and serve humanity um, with what I do, with what I believe I was yeah. born to do. Yeah. And you're amazing at what you do. I have learned so much from your work, even though I'm not a struggling student. I've like the whole executive function piece. I had never heard of that before you. And to relate that back to my trauma and make sense of it was such a huge turning point for me and my healing. Um, and there's, there's so much we could talk about, but to to wrap up, tell people where they can find you online, where they can find your work and all of that good stuff. It'll be in the show notes too, but. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, go to sethperler.com, S-E-T-H-P-E-R-L-E-R.com. That's my main site. I And that's my blog and my blog and I have tons of free resources, yes. but it is good for adults too. I have a lot of, well, I have mostly parents and teachers that follow me for kids, but I have so many adults that are like, oh my God, this is applicable to me. I run an executive function online summit called executivefunctionsummit.com, which is a free summit that is amazing. We get experts from all over that talk about executive function. And um, I'm on YouTube, Seth Perler, and I have a YouTube channel. You can subscribe and all the things. And I just started a secret project. I don't know if I should say it yet, but if you follow me, um, and it has to do with changing education in a very snarky way where I can really be as pissed off as I am. Yeah. Um, and that is coming. We just got the website started today, Stephanie. I'm super, That's you've exciting. heard me talking about this for five yes. years. Um, so that is coming and uh, that's where you can find me online. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I so appreciate it. Colorado, but then you can away. find me in Maui <laughs> after next month.
don't find me in Hawaii. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing everything. I so appreciate you and your work, like for so many reasons. So thank you for being here and sharing. Thanks for everything you do, Stephanie. Thank you so much for joining us today and for being a part of this powerful community of purpose-driven individuals. We have a ton of free resources for you at www.talesfromthejourney.tv slash free, including access to an eight-week sampler of our renowned journey mapping program. That gives you instant access to impactful training lessons, life-changing exercises, and our signature AccuSesh processes that you can implement immediately. We love your help in getting the message out and growing our community, so please take a moment to share this episode, subscribe to the podcast, and leave us a review on iTunes. I'll catch you in the next episode.